Hello, and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk to the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Coops. I'm your host. And uh, today I'm very excited to bring you an interview with Diana Peterfreund. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thank you for having me, Nathan. Yeah, I, I was really excited because I've been you know, researching you, of course, a little bit for the interview. And there's just so much to talk about. I know that half hour is probably <laughs> going to fly by before uh, we have a chance to cover nearly, nearly as much as I would like to. But um, to start out with, can you tell people a little bit about you and especially about your uh, Omega City series? Uh, sure. So um, I live uh, right outside Washington, D.C., and so Omega City is sort of uh, my love letter to this area and what's happening here, and also to kind of the 80s adventure movies that I loved as a child, like The Goonies, okay, yeah. that kind of thing. I think I was like right before Stranger Things in terms of like hitting that nostalgia. Yeah. So um, Omega City is a story about these uh, these teens in rural Maryland who find the secret diary of a Cold War era rocket scientist, um, and they use it to decipher a map that he left into an abandoned underground bunker city that he built in rural Maryland for uh, you know people to escape from in the event of, of nuclear war during the yeah. Cold War. So they go exploring into it, and it's just, I, I describe it as sort of like Goonies, but with rocket ships instead of pirate ships. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. That's right up my alley. So yeah. there's three, and they're all out, the whole series. Um, okay. So the biggest city, and then the sequel, The Forbidden Fortress, which takes place in Chesapeake Bay, and then um, the third book, Infinity Base, which takes place on a space station. Ooh, even more fun. Um, that's just that's just a blast. Like, the whole the whole premise there is, is super, super cool. How did you... Um, decide to start writing this particular, obviously location, you knew the area, but right. uh, where did you get your love of the sort of middle grade type adventure uh, stuff? Well, it was funny. I was actually having a conversation with my editor um, at HarperCollins, um, Kristen Renz. We had done four books, four YA novels at that point together, and we were talking about how uh, middle grade, there seemed to be like two paths. Like either there was the like serious problem novel path, like, oh no, mm -hmm. my parents are getting a divorce or whatever. Yeah. Or there was the um, kind of very sort of like whimsical fantasy path where like it was Harry Potter, but like it wasn't like our world, right? He mm -hmm. lives in a cupboard under the stairs. Like, you right. know, it's more like a fairy tale kind of world. And I was like, you know, when I was a kid, there were these sort of outrageous adventures that kids had, but they lived in our world, you know, they listened to Michael Jackson, they ate Reese's Pieces, like, mm -hmm. you know, all those kind of things, and there, there it wasn't any of that kind of Spielberg-esque story, and we were talking about how much she loved the Goonies, and I loved the Goonies, and I was like, I could write a book about kids whose parents are getting divorced, and they have an awesome adventure, yeah. and, like, base it in the real world, so that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, no, Spielberg's a great parallel, kind of really taps into that sort of 80s kid adventure but it's deals with real issues I, I, that's a, a great way to um phrase it and gets you right in, in the headspace of what you're talking about yeah i actually made a list i was like things i was obsessed with when i was 10 years old and i was like uh spaceships jumping off of high things into water puzzles codes and i yeah. was like all these things are going in the book and so i just you know put each one yeah. in the book <laughs> that was an interesting discussion that went on at nink this past year was um there was a author there named Jennifer Lynn Bards who talks about the id and like our personal ids, our id list of things that we love and how we should put those into books. And um, it's funny because like I was reading through some of your descriptions of 
of things like, you know, treasure maps and secret codes and, and secret societies. Like your id list, I feel like in my id list is probably very similar because a lot of the things that you're excited about, I'm also excited about. I think we had this discussion at Nink the other yeah. year too about like secret codes and like steampunky things. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, Jen and I have been friends for a really long time. We actually went on a writing retreat together back in 2009 to a okay. castle in Ireland. Um, and she is, she's all in on this whole idea of the id list. And I always think about it now when I make a book in my yeah. little like notebook. I have an id list. And I also think about it when I'm describing books and I'm trying to sell it on p- to people because my mm-hmm. id list is chances are a reader's id list. And so, you know, it, if there's anything that I can say, this book is about, you know, Secret passages and evil twins, and people are like, "What did you say?" You yeah. know, people like that stuff. So yeah, absolutely. No, that's just a lot of fun. And of course, it, you know, it sells. It's it's the stuff that. Of course, you were fortunate enough to have an editor, you know, at a traditional published, you know, agency saying, "Yes, this is what's selling as well" to help you out along the way. Um, yeah, and- I think it was more like we really liked it. I mean, we we have. We've been working together for like ten years, so it was okay. it was very easy to be like, "What should we do next? What is what is the thing?" You know. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's something I wanted to, to talk about a little bit. Like, this is um, how, how many books do you, you have? Over ten novels out. Oh gosh, um, so twelve traditional novels, seven indie novels, like a bunch of short stories, mm-hmm. a lot, like dozens of short stories. So a lot, a lot, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and you've ranged all over. And of course, you, you come from a very um, uh, sort of traditional background too. You're a, you're a Yale graduate. You've you know majored in literature um, and geology, which I think is really really fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you've got you've had this you've been on this path for a while. And what was so I, I want to talk just for a second about your fir- first series that you sold, which was the, the Secret Society Girl series. Um, yes. What was that story about? Coming up with your your first novel, like. Um, well, when I, when I graduated from college, uh, I wanted to be a novelist, but I had never met a novelist. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that all novelists had like day jobs because I knew, uh, I had a teacher in elementary school who wrote like, uh, teen romances, but she was also a teacher at my elementary school. Um, and, uh, so I thought that would be what I was going to do. I was going to be a science journalist, the geology and the literature, and uh, then I was going to write books on the side. So I, um, looked up what was the shortest kind of book and it was a category romance. And I loved romance novels. I still love romance novels. So I was like, okay, I'll write one of those. And I wrote it. And then I joined Art of the Way, which cost 100 bucks, which was like, oh, my God, like, this is a big commitment. Um, And I tried to write these category romance novels. And I would get these rejections. This was back in the day where you had to snail mail it in, where you Mm -hmm. had to uh, basically, like, you know, you were writing these very targeted books that was o- they were only published by one publisher. And so if the editor turned it down, like, that was it. You then had to write another 50,000-word book, you know? Mm. And I wrote four of them. And I get these rejections that would say things like, your writing's very good, but, you know, we can't publish this, we can't publish that. Right. Um, sort of at the same time, I was reading, you know, Chicklet was very big, Bridget Jones's Diary, The Devil Wears Prada, that kind of thing. And that was the life I was living. I was living... Um, well, first I lived in New York for a while, and then uh, my now husband and I went backpacking through Australia, which is like a very millennial thing to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I watched The Skulls. It had like, yeah. it was like this old movie. Joshua anyway, Jackson? So Josh Jackson yeah. and, um, and the guy from The Fast and the Furious, he was in it too. But um, anyway, so 
watched it and I was like, that's not what secret societies are like. I went to Yale. I know what secret societies are like. And then I was like, oh, I should write a book about what secret societies are really like. So um, I wrote, you know, that book and, you know, because it had a lot of places it could go, I was able to shop for an agent, um, found an agent really quickly, um, and uh, she was able to sell the book really quickly um, at auction. So it was a great kind of story. Like, the, I had just been knocking on the wrong door. Hmm. You know, I'd been trying to sell, but I'd been just knocking on the wrong door, writing the wrong kind of book that wasn't really a me kind of book. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, so I sold that, and then when it came out a year later... It, there was sort of a backlash happening against Chicklet. This sort of happens with every genre. Every time there's a hot genre, there's mm. like a backlash against it, yeah. especially if it's a genre that appeals, I think, to female readers. Um, you know, like you see it every time there's a big vampire romance, right? People are like, oh, gosh, like Bella sucks or something like that. And you're like, but a lot, it, yeah. a lot of women like this. A lot of mm -hmm. girl readers like this. And so there was a backlash against Chicklet. Um but, you know, I still have fans of that book, um, and they love it, so that's great. But at the same time, I was like, okay, well, um, obviously I shouldn't be writing for 30-year-olds because I'm not one yet. <laughs> and, you know, I was writing for these college-age things, and there was an issue we were selling it about whether or not it was YA or adult, and the YA houses were like, can you age her down from 21? Hmm. And the adult houses were like, you know... Uh, this might be young for us or whatever. And so um, I was like, well, the next time I try to write a YA, I'll make her 16, because that's the age of all the characters on teen TV shows. So I started writing YA, and I sold um, the Killer Unicorn books, yeah. sort of at the same time. So then I was doing an adult series and a YA series at the same time, and so I've always kind of been doing two things at once, <laughs> or maybe three things at once, so, you know, just trying to... It's good, because, you know, genres crash and burn, yeah. and so it's always good to kind of, like, keep your interests diversified, I think. Yeah. And speaking of, like, strong in words and just a, a compelling premise, you can't say the word killer unicorns and then not back up a minute and talk about that. So um, <laughs> tell us about this concept of killer unicorns, because this has just cap captivated my attention immediately as soon as I saw it. I, uh, I had a dream. I was getting chased by a unicorn, and I woke up, and I was, like, looking up sort of dream meanings, and yeah. I, I sort of stumbled on all of this stuff about about unicorns and like the mythology of unicorns kind of in different mythologies all over the world. And I was mm -hmm. like, gosh, how come I never learned about this? You know, the unicorns I grew up with, they're sort of these Lisa Frank kind of like rainbowy, like gentle things. And I'm like, unicorns are badass. Like they're really <laughs> hardcore and dangerous. And so I created this whole mythology that sort of like incorporated the actual sort of unicorn legends that I was reading all over the place. And I loved Buffy. So I was like, all right, we'll just, instead of having a, vampire slayer will have will have unicorn slayers and so yeah. i sort of created that kind of story and so the the books are set now um they're set mainly in europe in in rome and in france um and they're about a girl who discovers that she and other descendants of alexander the great have this magical ability to hunt unicorns which everyone thought were extinct mm. but have mysteriously sort of come back due to you know climate change and deforestation and things like that they've encroached out of the wild and um and they have to they have to hunt them because they're man eaters that's just so much fun <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a blast. It's uh, two novels and then a lot of short stories at this point okay. set in the killer unicorn universe. <laughs> yeah, I just like that that's a universe. And I know you mentioned it was in an anthology. You have 
the zombies use zombies versus unicorns anthology that it's in. Yeah, it's in Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, it's in the Nink anthology cast of characters. Oh, um, it's in uh, it's in uh, Daughters of Athena, which is like the most successful anthology ever on Kickstarter or something. Um, it's in just a bunch of a bunch of things. I did a lot of uh, killer unicorn stories. <laughs> I, I love the title, "The Care and Feeding of Your Baby Killer Unicorn." I thought that was just an a, just a blast of a title. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Uh, that was um, that was in Zombies vs Unicorns, which the the cover art is right behind me, and then also it was in the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume Five. So if you're an adult science fiction fan, that's probably how you know me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, so yeah, you've got a, a variety of things going on in your catalog, all of which <laughs> seem to appeal to me. Like one of one of the things that you have in your um, we have a post-apocalyptic Jane Austen book story, which I think is, is just a cool concept. But then you also have a book inspired by the Scarlet Pimpernel? Yes, those are actually set in the same sort of post-apocalyptic world because I wrote uh, For Darkness Shows the Stars. That's mm -hmm. the one that's Jane Austen. Um, and then my uh, my editor was like, we'll write... Uh, they didn't want to do a third unicorn book, so they said, can you write another one set in that world? Can you do Pride and Prejudice, or can you do Emma? And I tried to figure out how any of those stories would sort of fit into the world I created, and I didn't like any of them fitting at the time. I couldn't think of anything, but I could see a way that the Scarlet Pimpernel could fit, and I love the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, yeah. He's basically like Batman of the French Revolution, and... Yeah, exactly. um, and then I also loved, uh, I I'd always wanted to tell that story gender flipped and make the Pimpernel into a woman because I felt like a lot of times uh, people are really willing to dismiss very pretty or fashionable girls as being stupid. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, like what the Scarlet Pimpernel wants. They want them, like he or she would want her enemies to dismiss her as stupid and, and empty headed because she cares about fashion, because she's very pretty, all of these things. So. Yeah. I wanted to tell this story of people underestimating a teenage girl who really likes pretty dresses um, in the future. That's fantastic. I love <laughs> Scarlet Pimpernel. Like he was the original Bruce Wayne, essentially. So, um, yeah, yeah I grew up with. Nobody the... knows what a badass he is. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's like it's so cool. Everyone thinks he's just some fop, and it's just like that's just such a cool concept for you to you know gender swap that. And yeah, my husband wasn't into it at all, and then I had to explain to him that he was Bruce Wayne, and then all of a sudden he was like watching yeah. the movies with me with the powdered wigs and everything. Like yeah, that. you get it. Then you're like, oh, that's what it is. This is Batman. This okay. Is, yeah. Bye. <laughs> no, I, I just think it's really cool. I just love your whole catalog. I think it's just a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. I know it is. It is funny. Like in this day and age, where everyone's like, "Oh, I write werewolf, bear, gay shifters," and like that's it. I'm like, "Well, yeah. I do middle grade and young adult and YA." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So this this is it's just a lot of fun. Like delving into your history. You know, we've been doing this for a while. It's like over well over ten years. I think what was it? Two thousand six. Um, yeah. When the first novel came out. Yeah getting right up there <laughs> but one of the things i wanted to chat with you about was because you have seen a lot of these changes you've been in the industry for a long time you've been selling books for a long time um i know you've recently started becoming a hybrid author you've kind of made some tr some transitions from trad pub to indie um mm -hmm. what are some of the things uh, affecting your mindset about publishing in general right now and how you decide how where you're going to sell your next book whether you're going to do it yourself or go trad 
Um, well, I'm a, I'm a really big publishing wonk. Like I sort of keep my like ear to the ground when it comes to like the Nink conference mm -hmm. or, you know, Facebook groups about publishing and things like that. And I sort of watched indie publishing happen. Um, I was able to just when like Kindle opened up immediately put some short stories that I had, you know, my rights back to up right away, you know, with very little trouble, um, and things like that. So I did my first original Kindle novel back in, well, not just Kindle, I mean, it was wide, but I did my first original, like, indie novel, um, in 2013, that's one only by my pen name, Viv Daniels, um, and it was very successful, um, and I was able to do two more under that pen name, and then I had to take a break, because I, I had my second daughter, and I was pregnant, and I was having a baby, and things like that, but, um, when I came back to indie publishing last year, uh, I was like, whoa, this is an entirely different universe. You know, you used to be able to just sort of put your stuff up there and kind of hope for the best. And now it's yeah. like, you know, it was this, it was this whole thing. But I was, I was the president of Nink at the time. I was on the board of Nink. I was working on the conference for Nink. So I was aware of what was happening. And mm. I had a lot of friends that were doing really, really well in indie. Um, and I had sort of learned a lot from kind of my previous experience. Um, and to me, what I was really interested in was that, you know, when I started, you had to write to the market that New York wanted. And if mm -hmm. you weren't writing what New York wanted, then like there was no place for what you were writing. And w what I was really interested in seeing was the way that um, the markets had kind of split. Like I think, uh, I think now what's published even not in every genre. Um, like I think in romance, you tend to see a lot of the same kind of things, both in indie and in traditional, but I think what's published and what does really well in say, YA um, and indie is very different than maybe what's doing really well in YA in traditional, and they seem to be very different. And yeah. so I can, as a YA writer, I can look at it and be like, oh, what I'm writing isn't going to do well in indie because I can't put out six of these a year and it doesn't have a strong romance, you know, like the kind of things. I have a lot of friends that are doing amazingly well in YA, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I when I pick a project, I can look at it and be like, oh, you know, the, these these things would make it do well in indie, these things would make it not. I, I mean, I suppose there are some people who are doing really well in, like, young children's books in indie. I've, I've, I've heard of them, but they are very few and far between compared to the people who are doing really well in, like, sci-fi or romance. Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's, yep. like, thousands of them. So, yeah. um, so when I... I was looking at it saying, okay, in romance, for what I want to do it's better to go indie okay. because you, you know, you don't have the waiting period. You don't have the profit sharing. And I think a lot of romance readers are reading, um, a lot in, uh, in eBooks. So it's mm. kind of like, well, the display is the same either way. So for me, when I went back to writing uh, romance, I was like, indie is the way to go. And so that's, that's kind of what I've been doing is, is going back to writing romance adult romance in indie mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, my middle grade and, and things to, to New York. I think that's a very important distinction to make is that, you know, yet not all the markets are the same. And, and like you said, sub markets are different too. And the way that you approach a market can be different. And like, you, it's great that you have sort of different tools in your arsenal of saying, okay, well I have the option. 
I think sometimes people act like there's some sort of war, and maybe it's just because I've known people like you know sort of doing both for such a long time. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a different system. Like one is not better than the other. I think mm-hmm. what you do is you look at your project and you're like, where is this? I mean, when I wrote my first book that ended up being indie, I sent it to my agent, and he wrote me back and he said, look, I can I could probably sell this. Mm-hmm. He's like. But you probably make more money if you went indie, and that yeah. was just that was as simple as the decision was, and, and you know, and that's what we did. So mm-hmm. he sold it. He sold subrights for me to like foreign countries. That's fantastic, and I think that's one of the things that I most appreciate about Nink as a conference and as an organization is that you run across people who have this sort of depth of experience, who have especially been around since before indie was indie and have kind of got a bigger picture, maybe a broader picture of the overall industry. And they, like you said, it's not a war. It is a, um, it's an industry, and you just have to figure out which avenues are right for you and your book at the time. It's not, yeah. And it's not just this, oh, this whole traditional industry is, you know, mahogany desk over here and doesn't want anything to do with us. That's not really the case. And the more you kind of get to know people, and network and make these connections, especially with people who have been around the industry for a while, you learn that it's not nearly as black and white as people think. What are some ways that when you're doing your research, um, obviously you've grown some of these connections over the years from coming from a trad uh, experience, but do you have any advice for people maybe who are currently indie as far as how to feel out a market in a, in a traditional way? Well, um, you know, it's. I do feel like I've been really lucky that, you know, a lot of the people that I kind of came up with in traditional mm-hmm. and, you know, were RWA members and friends with, you know, for years were some of the indie pioneers, people like Jenna DeLeon or Roxanne St. Clair, you know, mm-hmm. like they started doing indie and really made a go of it and things like that. But then also I, you know, when I go to Nink, I meet people who are newer like you, um, my last Nink conference, I met uh, Melanie Sellier and Elizabeth mm-hmm. Ann West, mm-hmm. and they're they both started publishing way after me, but they're like doing so well in indie, and they have so much to sort of offer. Um, I think just be like really open, I guess, and and try to remember that like everybody is sort of an expert in their own in their mm-hmm. own realm. Yeah. Um, you know, and even if there are people that like I might want to disagree with on like certain levels that doesn't mean that like they don't that i they don't have places to agree with them right they're doing something right somewhere right yeah yeah. and then also like like not be judgy i guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) about you know sort of like the way that somebody is choosing to to do things and to craft their career um you know as long as they're not being jerks right or like stealing things or Mm -hmm. like just you know like don't be a jerk i guess yeah um but but as far as as far as like deciding whether or not I want to go traditional or indie with something, um, for me the type of YA that I write, which takes like you know six to to ten months to like get a book down, is not going to be a good bet for indie because of the turnover that indie requires. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other YAs that other people write that probably would be good. So like you know I mean. Uh, I my friends uh, are published as Sophie Davis, and like the amount they write, just like it yeah. it yeah. leaves me it leaves me breathless. And and um and I know that I couldn't do the kind of YAs that I want to do in that time period. So then indie's just not going to work. It's kind of mm-hmm. like saying like, oh, if you want to have dinner on the table in an hour, like you're not going to make beef bourguignon. 
Like, you're just yeah. not. That's, like, not what you're going to make. That doesn't mean you can't make an amazing, like, you know, I don't know, something else, a burger, like, really, yeah. really good burger, a really, really good steak. You just don't have the time to make beef bourguignon. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, like, it's not, it's just a different dish, that's all. Not One's not better than the other. I love Probably the steak would be more expensive. I love a good food analogy whenever whenever possible. It's always, it's always a win. Um, see some comments. We had a, a, a thumbs up from Mark Lefebvre. I see Elizabeth Ann West is watching. So hi, Elizabeth. Um, thanks for saying hi. Um, former guest of the show as well. So um, if anyone has comments or questions for Diana, definitely throw them up. In Whether you're watching live or whether you're watching the replay later on, feel free to pop up a comment and, and say hello. Uh, Marilyn says, good comparison. Elizabeth says, making me hungry. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, we're going to go eat after this. <laughs> yeah, food, food analogies get everyone hungry. So, yeah, I really um, think it does take a lot of research. I mean, sometimes I see people commenting in Facebook groups that they're just like, hey, I've, I've heard you can make a, a quick buck, you know, writing something for Kindle. And I'm mm -hmm. like... You really can't. Like, I don't, I mean, maybe there are some people who can, like, make a liar out of me. But, like, I think that those people work so hard. Um, and even the people who sort of created their own little empires where they're, like, you know, the indie version of James Patterson. And they've mm -hmm. got, you know, like, five ghostwriters working for them or th something like that. I'm like, th those guys are, like, CEOs of their own little business. Like, they're yeah. still working their butts off. Yeah, they're working very hard. And it's also true, like, if there's a way to make a quick buck, it might be your only buck. I mean, that quick one you made as opposed to spending a little bit more time on it, building mm -hmm. something that's going to earn for you long term. You know, yeah. One thing my friends and I talk a lot about is like, you know, we see sometimes people putting up books that we think are crappy and we're like, gosh, you know, like, look at that person. They made like $10,000 last month on this book or whatever. But I'm like, you know, what? I don't think I could write that. Mm -hmm. If I tried, like, I don't know what people like, I'm not responding to it. So I don't know what the readers who are responding to it are responding to. Therefore, I don't know if I could recreate it. Like I couldn't make it happen. Yeah. And I think that it's, um, people that are, a lot of think there's a, there's a problem with some people that jump into the industry right now and only see this little snippet of the way the publishing, especially the indie space is working right now. Think that this is the only way you've got to write short, fast, rapid release, you know, hammer out a bunch of books, and they only see that way of success. Whereas people who've been in the industry for a while, like I've only been publishing for five years, but I can I can tell you a variety of things I've seen over the years of people doing serials and like stuff that's kind of come and gone. These trends that have come and gone. I think We're, that's why I try to diversify because, like, yeah. you know, I've I've also seen trends come and go like a lot. You know, mm -hmm. indie, traditional, wherever. Um, you know, I wrote for an app. For like a year it was it was it was an app and it's kind of gone away and, and things like that but uh it was great while it lasted so basically i'm just trying to keep my options open and make sure i mean you read it a lot like nowadays especially with people on kindle unlimited they're like oh they put all their eggs in the kindle unlimited basket mm -hmm. and then if the algorithms change or something like a couple of years ago everyone was writing short stories because kindle unlimited was paying you know per download and then they changed it and all their short stories were suddenly worth Right. Where, whereas people like me who write it's long tough. books, people, really people with long books like me all of a sudden started benefiting from KU. And so it's like, yeah, <laughs> the, the trends trends change for sure. But speaking of diversity and your, your particular diversity of writing, could you talk a little bit about um, your novelization and sort of your, like your media tie-in books? You want to oh, yeah. Uh, so it was great. I had just joined Nink and I'd gone to uh, my first Nink conference and I met a bunch of people from uh, the International Association of Tie-in Writers. And I'd never really known anything about tie-in writing. It was before it was, like now it's very popular, and especially in children's fiction, it's very popular. But I was a chiclet writer. 
And I was like, well, is it, you know, hack work? And they were like, no, no, it's like really good. It's fantastic. It's, you know, it's like being in a TV, like if you were going to get a job, like writing on a TV show or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I said, well, that actually sounds kind of cool. And so when my editor at Random House called me up and said, you know, we have this script, we want to make a novelization of it. Would this be something you're interested in? I'm like, yes, yes, I would. And it came at the right time, too, because I had just gotten pregnant with my first daughter, and I was, like, super sick. And uh, so I didn't have to, like, work on an original novel. I could just sort of, like, you know, add in the narrative and sort of the dialogue tags for a script. And so it was really really good, and um, it was a great experience. Uh, And so the next time, um, you know, I I would say to my agents and stuff over the years, like, hey, can you find me, like, a tie-in novel? Can you find me some licensed work? And, you know, it's hard, you know, sometimes to find the thing that that matches. There's a lot more opportunities in children's fiction because there's a lot of uh, licensed work, packaged work, you know, everybody's doing, like, novels about Star Trek and, I mean, Star Wars and superheroes and stuff now. It's super popular yeah. in YA. So it's hard to get them now, especially because, like, the New York Times bestsellers are like, oh, yeah, I'll write a Wonder Woman novel. And you're like, great, Lee Bardugo, what are the rest of us going to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I, you know, I uh, I got another, uh, I got another tie-in um, this summer that hopefully will be announced soon that I'm really excited about. Um and uh any recommendations for people looking licensed work it just it feels like uh someone paying you to write fanfic it's fantastic (laughs) any recommendations for anyone who's looking to maybe try to get into that world how they would even go about starting uh yeah the best thing to do honestly is um to get an agent Mm -hmm. um because usually the way that you find it is that like the editors who have the license from the company, like from Marvel or Lucasfilm or whatever, they go out to the agents and they're like, would so-and-so be interested in writing whatever? Um, it is, Mm. it is actually like a hard kind of thing to break into from the outside. Mm. Um, because, you know, because of the fact that like, you know, there's all of these like corporate levels that you kind of have to, to filter your way through. Um, I don't know of anybody uh, I mean, I, I think that there are some places you can pitch. Like, I think DC Comics lets you pitch things, but I don't know anyone who's pitched them without an agent. I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Those people probably have bigger uh, egos than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Just confidence. We'll call it confidence. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They have, they have a lot more confidence than I do. So so it is kind of one of those things um, that it is great to have an agent for, um, mm-hmm. especially if you have an agent that that does a lot of licensed stuff. Um, and then again, like, you know, if you are a traditional author and you're established and things like that, you can always like call up the publishers that do a lot of it. Publishers, especially in children's books, do a lot of IP. They do a lot of stuff that the in-house has thought it up. Um, the other way I've seen of getting into it is, uh, going to work for a packager like Alloy Entertainment, um, who does, you know, like Gossip Girl and, and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and things like that. They do a lot of packaged stuff, too. Um, the terms for that, for what, like the, the, the contract terms, um, vary among yeah. the companies. And so you definitely want to make sure that, like, you're you're getting a good deal. I, I don't think, I, I think that sometimes beginners get taken advantage of if they don't mm. know what to expect. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good advice. Um, Elizabeth says... <laughs> What's that? Get an agent. Is yeah. Protect, I, I know that's yourself. not helpful for people. It's like sometimes, but I do think that that's probably the quickest way. I mean, because I've had agents that weren't interested in, in licensed stuff, and, and that's hard if you want to do it, because 
if they don't think it's like prestige enough, then you know they're not going to work really hard to try to get it for you. Yeah. <laughs> but one of my goals with this show was to show different aspects of the publishing industry, and this is one that we haven't touched on yet. So I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation because sometimes people think, oh, well, I don't need an agent just to publish a book, but what are some of the avenues that maybe or doors that open? If I do go this route, if I do get an agent, it's not just trying to sell this particular book to a publisher. It's maybe opening, having things flow the other direction. And that's, you know, something that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of. I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of indie writers um, don't think about, about subrights and then about the idea of, um, of finding the in-house stuff that's, you know, mm -hmm. like hearing through the grapevine that like an editor is looking for this or, you know, that there might be an opportunity to, to write that kind of thing. I, I wonder if in the future there's going to be more opportunities for indie, because like, you know, indie writers are so popular, but they're kind of like invisible to, you know, corporations that are like only looking on the New York Times list or something. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it might be really interesting, the idea of, because I think indie writers are really well suited to doing licensed stuff because, mm -hmm. uh, they can write really quickly, and um, they are the this, the tone that they they use is usually very light, which is like what a lot of licensed stuff wants. Yeah, and Elizabeth had commented, "We love writing fanfic," so she's you know, <laughs> yeah. knows her knows her way around an adaptation or a customization right. of a novel. Uh, uh, someone asked me once, what was the difference between like a fanfic and a retelling, and I said, "150 and fifty years." Yeah. <laughs> No, it's like seventy five. Uh, that's the difference. <laughs> yeah, re repackage it in whatever way it sells. Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of um, no. That's that's really interesting for people who. I mean, obviously, you've been in the industry for a while, but do you have any advice for people who maybe who are going out and looking for agents as far as how, what to look for um, as far as a relationship now or how to? I mean, we're not sending in full full printed manuscripts, thankfully, like it used to be. Right. But what's yeah. the what's the current um, process like? Yeah, if you've never looked for an agent before, I think that the best thing to do would be to buy yourself um, a subscription to Publishers Marketplace, even for like one month, it's like 20 bucks, and then you can search mm -hmm. by genre, and you can sort of see who the recent deal makers are. You know, it's great, everyone's like, oh, I love Orson Scott Card, I want his agent, or something, and and, and you're, you're sitting there going, you're like, well, there's a lot of like new books, right, you know, from like, you know, and you might want to like sort of look widely. So just sort of find out who the deal makers are now, what they're doing. Um, and then uh, on Twitter, Twitter agents hang out on Twitter all day long. So uh, you can go and, and search under certain hashtags. Uh, yeah. MSWL is manuscript wish list. And so a lot yeah. of agents will put the kind of things that they're looking for like under that hashtag. Um, and there are like pitch wars and stuff on Twitter. I never did any of those things because I found an agent before Twitter and then sort of like in more recent times when I've been looking for agents, I kind of like knew in my head who I wanted and, you know, I just like emailed them. Yeah. Um, but like if you're a new person, I think that Twitter is like a really good idea to find out what agents are out there, what they've sold, what they're looking for. Um, I do recommend that, that your agent has a track record. Um, they're either working with an established agency, because like obviously junior agents aren't going to have you know a track record, or there's somebody who has like a track record, and you can look and see that there's like 20 titles that they have sold to major New York publishing houses. Mm -hmm. um, and I I just I I think that that's really important. And then just really nail your query. Um, I, I, that part hasn't changed. 
Yeah, yeah. It's. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, but like, there are a lot of ways that you can do that now. You can like go onto Facebook and be like, "Can five people look at my query?" And that's true. Yeah, we can, we can crowdsource <laughs> a lot more than we used to, I guess, and have a lot of. And of course, networking with other people in the industry is is fantastic. Um, are you going to be back at Nink this year? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, I wasn't able to go this past fall because uh, we had a family event, but. Um, but yeah, I miss it. I try to go. I try to go every year, um, yeah. and uh, uh, I love it. I love yeah. Nink so much. Like I, you know, whatever. I was the president, so obviously <laughs> I love Nink so much. But um, it's a, it's a great organization. Um, which you know, because we were talking about, like, what should the new people do? I'm like, well, join Nink. No, yeah. you can't until yeah. you have two books out. You know, yeah. but. Yeah. Um, it, it is a really, really good organization. If you can't join Nink, I definitely recommend going and uh, looking up the back issues of their newsletter because it's an amazing newsletter. Um, and just trying to uh, find an organization that is is as intelligent, sort of about about things as Nink is. And if you're not a member of Nink, why not? Yeah, it reminds me, I need to pay my. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good reminder. So yeah, that's good. I'm actually on the planning committee this year, so we're working hard, feverishly behind the scenes. But I'm always. Where they have a local. Yeah, it's 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 fun, you know. Of course, and you you are a Florida girl. You're from here, so maybe we get an excuse to get yeah, you back I'm, in the I'm, area. I'm super missing it. In weather. Look at my little gloves. It's like <laughs> I feel like I'm all like. <laughs> yeah, I'm over here in my flip flops. Like, I can't so. go farther north. Like DC's as north northern as it gets, man. I can't handle it. <laughs> Oh, so we've already blazed through our, our half hour as I knew would happen. There's, you know, a bunch of things we could still talk about, but unfortunately we're running out on time here. But where can people find more information about you if they want to connect with you online um, and hang out with you? Where, where can they sure. do that? Sure. Um, you can go to my website, uh, dianapeterfreund.com. Um, and from there, there'll be links to my Twitter, my Facebook page. Um, my Facebook page is like largely pictures of knitting and my kids, honestly. Um, and my Twitter is like super political these days. Yeah. So like fair warning. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the best place to find me. <laughs> I personally love following you on social media. I love all your posts. I, I, I'm glad that Facebook has decided that I get to see your stuff. Cause I, oh, I, thank I personally, you. Blah. I don't know why they, you know, that is the case. You can never figure out what Facebook's thinking, but. <laughs> I get to see your stuff, so that's cool. And people listening for the for the podcast, if you're just listening in audio, uh, Peter Freund is Peter, P-E-T-E-R, and F-R-E-U-N-D. So check out the website and uh, follow follow Diana on all the social media. And uh, But um, thank you so much, Diana, for taking time out of your busy day and being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. I hope I didn't say anything I'm going to be embarrassed about later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all, all we know so far is that Nink can hound you, hound you for their fees some more. So they I know, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's out of the bag. She hasn't paid yet. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, thanks everyone for watching and commenting, and you know, uh, we look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. That would be great if we could have you back again sometime, Dana. All right, thank you very much. All right, thanks everyone, and we'll see you again next episode. Bye. <laughs>